warning signs are there for a reason. A feeling in your gut, a house with too many things out of place, a story that just doesn't add up. Some might push those feelings aside. Others, their instinct is proven right, which is when we're all reminded, where there's smoke, there's fire. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. I just want to say up front here, this episode contains some very graphic content. It's brutal. There's no way around it, really. Yet, you know, this is the reality of murder and the monsters in our midst. To not cover stories like this would be to pick and choose only those cases that have a nice bow on top, ones we're comfortable with. My aim with crossing the line is to show that murder, no matter the circumstances is never, ever comfortable. And sometimes that shock value reminds us again that this stuff is real and the victims that we talk about are real people. With that said, let's get right into this week's case. It's June 5th, 1994. A woman walking her dog behind a Florida BP gas station notices something odd near the dumpster. So she approaches. She investigates. It's a human torso, a body missing the head, arms, and legs. It's so surreal, the sight doesn't even register with her brain at first. It's simply too heavy to comprehend. I mean, think about it. How many of us have taken a casual walk with a pet? Can you imagine being out, enjoying nature, walking your dog? And the next thing you know, you're staring at the remains of a dismembered corpse. The woman runs into the gas station, which had opened two hours before, and summons a man, the owner. He calls the local sheriff. This is Columbia County, Florida. And look, I know, I get it. Only in freaking Florida, right? Columbia County is up top of the state, just south of the Georgia border, situated between Jacksonville and Tallahassee. On that June 5th day, after the Columbia County Sheriff's Office takes the call, Detective Calvin Fenner and a deputy head out. The I-10 westbound ramp is just 80 feet from the BP gas station. So the first assumption is that someone drove off the freeway, dumped a torso, jumped back on the freeway, and took off. But investigating the murder is secondary right now to identifying the victim. And we've all seen and listened to enough true crime to understand that without those body parts, as the murderer undoubtedly planned, it's going to be very difficult to identify this person. No face to recognize, no dental records, no fingerprints. As Fenner and the deputy, Brian Ricks, begin assessing the situation, they can tell the victim is a white male. And that's about it. After a brief search of the dumpster and surrounding area, it's determined those body parts are probably not at the scene, just the torso. The gas station had closed the previous night at 10 p.m. and reopened that morning at 8 a.m. 
Because the body didn't show any signs of decomp and rigor mortis hadn't set in, it's clear the perpetrator dumped the torso very recently and the victim had been murdered and dismembered, likely within the past 12 or so hours. As the morning progresses with crime scene investigators and more detectives taking over, a witness comes forward, a local guy. He says he saw a vehicle backed up to the dumpster at 7 a.m. that morning. He says it was a Chevy Camaro or Firebird, gray, black, dark blue maybe. He mentions that the car looked new, quote, very well kept up, he says, shiny. The driver's door and the trunk were open. He didn't get a good look at the driver of the car, though. You know, it doesn't seem like much, at least at this stage, but it's something to go on. And who knows how important it could be as the investigation moves forward. As investigators comb through the inside of the dumpster, several additional pieces of evidence emerge. In the front part of the dumpster, they discover a number of plastic bags with what look to be bloodstains. A red, white, and blue checkered long sleeve flannel shirt, also with bloodstains. In the far right corner of the dumpster, a second plastic bag. Inside the second bag, CSIs uncover a blood-soaked, egg crate-style mattress topper, and it's rolled up. Inside the topper are two TriStar knives with black handles, one with a serrated 8-inch blade, the other a short 3-inch paring knife. The handles have been wiped clean of prints, but there's blood found on both knives. Also inside the bag is a pair of orange kitchen rubber gloves with blood stains on each. Beyond that, a horrifying discovery of what appears and would soon be proven to be bone, tissue, and hair in the crevices of the mattress topper, along with, oddly enough, bathtub stickers. You know, those little flowers you put on the bottom of the tub so you don't slip when it's wet. Then this. From where the torso was found behind the dumpster, investigators follow a blood smear pattern. A trail of blood into the dumpster and along the inside. It's as if somebody placed the torso inside the dumpster first and then decided, for whatever reason, to pull it out and place it behind the dumpster. Do you think it's so someone would find it? That's Catherine, my producer. And, you know, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, yeah. why would you pull the torso out of the dumpster? It kind of doesn't make sense, really. Right. But none of this makes sense. Yeah. And the other thing that's weird to me, too, is that if you're going to go to all the trouble to disguise a body by removing the hands and the arms and the legs and the head, why are you going to dispose of other pieces of evidence right next to the body? It's just bizarre. Why would you put gloves that might have your fingerprints in them right next to the body? Well, maybe this killer is brazen enough or narcissistic enough to think, I'm going to show you what I did, but you're not going to catch me, right? Yep. But what this does is give law enforcement excellent pieces of evidence in this case. But there's another even stranger feature of this murder. As ghastly as it sounds, the torso has been washed. You know, it's likely to remove any trace of forensic evidence the killer might have left behind, but perhaps it's a signature of some sort, some type of twisted ritualistic move on the killer's part. Again, going back to the point you made, I mean, here the killer washes the torso, but then leaves all this other evidence inside the dumpster. Listeners hear me say this a lot, that a crime scene really 
speaks volumes about the killer. The killer leaves his or her kind of mind in many ways at the crime scene. And we see that here. Mm -hmm. After an autopsy, it's determined the victim is likely a healthy male under the age of 25. Most early estimates put the age between 16 and 19 years old, which makes an already dire, horrific situation that much worse. Looking at the cut marks where the body was dismembered, it's clear the serrated knife and the paring knife were used. The medical examiner's comment, quote, all cuts were consistent with knife, not saw damage. Mm. Wow. Altogether, there are 71 cuts on the torso. This is the real world of law enforcement investigation. It's not the glamorized version of car chases, detectives building crime boards in a squad room and sudden epiphanies while sipping on cups of coffee. This is gruesome work that will affect those involved for a lifetime. Make no mistake about that. After an anthropologist is brought in to take a look at the torso, hoping to glean additional evidence for identification, it's determined that the victim is most likely between 14 and 17 years old. A freaking child, for God's sakes. Estimates are the boy is about 5'6 to 5'11. Big kid. The one small mercy here is that the medical examiner and anthropologists are certain the victim was dismembered post-mortem, so after he was murdered. You know, I I can't believe we have to be thankful for something like that, but Mm -hmm. when we come back, we'll dive into the investigation of the identity of the victim and begin the hunt for his killer. Homicide detectives, the good ones at least, will tell you as I have heard so many times throughout my career, that their job is to be the voice of the murder victim. Speak for those who can no longer speak for themselves. If you've spent any amount of time with homicide detectives, you know that they have a very different view of the world. They see the worst in people. Some might think their humor is a bit dark or that they carry themselves with a certain amount of hubris. But the thing is, this isn't ego. It's how they cope with all the madness they see on the job. Take this, for example. To go into work every day and see these photos, stand at the side of the medical examiner as he or she examines a torso of a child, knowing that somewhere in the world the victim's head, arms, and legs are still waiting to be found. You know, that will harden you. It creates a thick layer of cynicism around how you approach the world. I've known detectives who've investigated dismemberment cases and soon after left the job, who then later retreat into a life of holing up in their homes, staring through the blinds in paranoia at the world outside. You know, in all the books that I've written, the only story I had to put aside and stop working on for a time included the dismemberment of two people. Also, I remember when we were doing the episode about Kim Wall, and in the research for that, we watched a documentary on HBO, Undercurrent, which is fantastic if anyone wants to watch it. But one of the investigators in there, they asked him, you know, how it felt to be searching these waters for the body parts of a woman. And 
He said, you know, for him, he had to basically not think of it that way. He just had to think, we're looking for these plastic bags. We're looking for these pieces of evidence. And he had to think about it that way. And they asked him why. And he said, I just couldn't do my job if I didn't think about it that way. You have to detach from it. Mm -hmm. Emotionally detach from it. And in my case, the two people that were dismembered, that was only the beginning of the horror that happened afterwards. So it it was very hard to write that book. Yeah. Very, very hard. But one of my best-selling books. Go figure. It's called Cruel Death. Anyway, months then years go by. The Columbia County Sheriff's Office is no closer to identifying the gas station John Doe than they were on day one. They'd exhausted all potential ways in which to find a missing person and match him to the evidence and DNA they had. Unfortunately, the killer in this case had done a great job of making this person disappear and the body unidentifiable. Unbeknownst to the team working the case, however, about an hour east in Duval County, a missing persons report is filed on February 17, 1995. A young woman reports that her brother, 16, has been missing for about eight months. You know, it was unusual for the kid to leave the house and not return, especially since he took only a few items of clothing with him. So why do you think that they would wait that long to report him missing? It seems like it's a long time. The sister says she and her brother reported him missing back in July 1994, but were told that they could not report him missing in the county where they lived, Nassau County, just north of Jacksonville. So in in other words, you know, they were ignored. They got the brush off. Yeah. Yeah. It happens a lot. I mean, a lot more than you'd think. With this new report filed, Duval County looks into the original report the family claimed to have filed, but cannot find a record of them reporting it. The person who took the report most likely failed to file it. As I said, it's sad, but it does happen. Yeah. They probably assumed he was a runaway and then they ignored them. Right. Like, oh, the kid ran away, he'll come back in a couple of days, or they'll come back, they'll report it, whatever. We, we you know, we've got other stuff to do. It's, it's bullshit, but people run into this all the time. I hear these stories all the time from people. Mm-hmm. Duval County tells the sister they will begin an investigation into the missing teen right away. So now they are being heard. The sister of the missing Duval County kid then gives investigators a name, Ronnie Hyde, Pastor Ron, as he is known. In his early 30s then, Pastor Ron lives in Jacksonville Beach, and he and the missing teen were in a band together. They often played gigs in and around the Jacksonville Beach area. 16-year-old Freddie, as he was called, had aspirations of being a professional musician. He played in a heavy metal band, he wrote songs, And he also liked to hunt. The sister says she spoke to Pastor Ron and he told her that her brother, quote, got out of his vehicle somewhere in the Ocean Way area at some time in early June. And that's an important statement right there. Cops follow that lead and knock on Pastor Ron's door. He tells them the same thing. That 16-year-old Freddie Laster, the missing kid, jumped out of his car, and he never saw him again. Ron says he was giving the boy a ride to his grandmother's house. After that, the case goes cold. Duval County 
has very little to go on. It seems that Freddie Laster could have just left town on his own. Back in Columbia County, investigators are determined to identify their gas station John Doe. They never, and I mean never, give up. Years passed, decades. Now it's May 2014, nearly 20 years since Freddie Laster is reported missing after purportedly jumping out of Pastor Ron's car and an investigator contacts the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He asks them to post the gas station John Doe case on its website. You know, this is just a detective with a hunch. Let's do this. Let's see what happens. One little thing at a time. Like, you know what? We haven't tried this before. Let's try this. That You're exactly right. That's just like a hundred other things he's probably done. That it's, You're 1,000% right. That's exactly how this happens. And look, sometimes all it takes is willingness, patience, persistence, and trying new tactics you've never tried before. In other words, never giving up, never forgetting about the victim. And this goes back to what I said earlier about certain homicide investigators. Redemption for them, a way to deal with all the madness they encounter, comes in the form of breaking a case, identifying a victim, bringing them home, then arresting a scumbag. And going back to what Catherine, my producer, said about that Kim Wall case, they took themselves out of it and said, let's just find those bags. Let's just put her back together, bring her home to her family. That's the focus. And it's the same thing here. They are going to identify this gas station, John Doe, if it is the last thing they do. And look, four months after the center posts the gas station, John Doe information in 2014, Freddie Laster's sister sees the post on the website and calls the number. Quote, I think it might be my missing brother. She never gave up. She never gave up either. Freddie Laster had five siblings. They have been constantly looking for him, always on law enforcement for updates, living with the nightmare that Freddie is gone. In their hearts, they knew something bad had happened to Freddie. But his sister was the most desperate to find Freddie because he wasn't just her brother. He was her twin. She couldn't continue to live without knowing what happened to her other half. So after seeing the post on the Missing and Exploited Children website, she volunteers her DNA. And in February 2016, and I know, why in the hell does it take this shit so long to come back? The results prove that she has found her brother. Freddie Laster is the dismembered gas station John Doe. The sister then gives the new detective from Columbia work in the case that same information about Pastor Ron. But 20 years have passed now, and she and her siblings have spoken to Pastor Ron many more times throughout the years. And you know what? They have additional information to offer. Quote, he has given us different stories about his last contact with my brother. If you recall, first Pastor Ron's story was that Freddie jumped from his car, ran, and he never saw him again. But then it changed. Oh, I dropped Freddie off at a park. Then it changed again. He dropped him off at a bridge going in a different direction, into a different county. Later, he even told one of Freddie's brothers it was another bridge entirely. Years later, the sister asks again, and Ron says he dropped Freddie off at his grandmother's house. These are beyond huge red flags, right? 
the truth is absolute. It never changes. You don't have to remember the truth. It's part of who you are. Unless, of course, you're lying. Pastor Ron had known the Laster family since the late 80s. They trusted him. There was a time when Pastor Ron had served as a foster father to Freddie and two of his siblings, including the sister who made the initial missing person report. A purported man of God, Pastor Ron had not only opened his home to the family, but seemed to take a personal interest in raising and helping the kids. At least, some might call it taking an interest. Others might call it something different, like grooming, maybe? Over the years, decades rather, Columbia County had resubmitted the DNA found on the torso and flannel shirt and knives for retesting, hoping to get a hit from the national databases on a perp or a match on a John Doe. Though nothing ever came back, what they did learn was that there were two different male profiles of DNA found all over several pieces of the evidence. One is the victim's. The other is from an unsub or unidentified subject, the killer. There can be no doubt about it. One particular piece of evidence of great interest to investigators is the flannel shirt found in the dumpster. Investigators believe the killer wore the shirt, not the victim, Freddie Laster. A DNA profile different from 16-year-old Freddie is found on that shirt, which, if you recall earlier, also had Freddie's blood on it. Then, in 2010, detectives from Columbia County resubmitted the flannel shirt after several advancements had been made in DNA testing technology. Around the collar... And in the armpit of the shirt, a mixture of Freddie's DNA and that same unknown male's DNA was found. This is a huge break for detectives working the case. (laughs) You know, what this tells me is there's sweat DNA. That's what this is. If we're talking armpits, that's sweat DNA. And that's directly from a guy sweating while he's cutting up a body. Let's take another break, and when we come back, I think you'll find the police work in this case pretty damn amazing. In February 2016, after Freddie's twin sister saw the post on the missing and exploited children's site and came forward, investigators made Pastor Ron their number one suspect. If he was the last person to see Freddie, then at the very least, he needed to be ruled out. The sister's information about Pastor Ron fostering Freddie was also legit, they recently found out. Ron had even declared Freddie on his taxes for several years, including the year Freddie went missing. Jesus. See, my first thought was like, isn't that illegal? But it's like they actually lived with him. Well, cutting up a body and murdering someone's illegal too. I mean, so, so, (laughs) you know. If you're going to cut up a body cheating on your taxes, not so bad. You know, it's not a bad thing. Uh, Fair point. When investigators looked into what kind of car he drove in 1994, guess what? Lo and behold, Pastor Ron owned a dark colored Camaro. The same kind of car described by that first witness as having backed up to the dumpster with the trunk open, the door open early that morning. The torso was discovered. Look, it, you know, two and two usually make four when investigating murder. And I want to say this contrary to what limited series on television have dramatized, 
most of the time, murder is uncomplicated. You just have to find the right pieces and the answers will kind of just fall into place. It may take some time, but the answers to murder are generally pretty simple. And it's not the kind of scripted stuff that we want to believe. It's not all this drama. It's like two plus two plus two equals six. And it just takes time and persistence. By April of 2016, investigators are fairly certain Pastor Ronnie Hyde is their guy. If they can get his DNA, they can confirm their suspicions. They have Ron's address on 4th Avenue in Jacksonville Beach, where he had been living just about all of his miserable life. They confirm Ron is the only person living at that address. So, and this is great. I mean, I love this. Investigators hang out curbside and wait until Ron takes out his garbage. After witnessing him rolling the garbage out to the curb, they get their hands dirty and they start digging through it and they find a piece of mail with Ron Hyde's name on it. But that's just the beginning. Then, the freaking jackpot. Inside the garbage bag is a red Solo cup with several used Zycam nasal swabs. Zycam is that cold remedy. You actually swab your nose with the medicine on the end of a Q-tip to try and lessen the severity of a cold. Ron Hyde had literally swabbed his nose for the police. (laughs) In secretive DNA collection parlance, this would be akin to a royal straight flush for a cop. It does not get any better than this. It's crazy. Investigators send those Zycam swabs into the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for comparison to the swabs of the unknown DNA they discovered on that flannel shirt. The test comes back positive for a match. So good, in fact, the lab averaged it to be at one in 700 billion. The Zycam swabs match the underarm unknown DNA sample and the collar unknown DNA sample, along with that mixture of Freddie's blood and the unknown. After getting the results, they theorize that Ron Hyde wore the flannel shirt as he murdered and then dismembered Freddie Laster. As Freddie's sister began talking to detectives about their life with Ron Hyde, disturbing stories came to light. Ron was creepy. He was just this, I mean, you look at this guy and he just looks the part. Ron was always very controlling and possessive of Freddie. There was one morning when Freddie's twin sister awoke to find Ron completely naked, trying to quietly wake up Freddie, who was sleeping. It's just one strange way in which Ron acted around Freddie. And the last time the sister spoke to Freddie, she said he sounded distant and worried and scared, and that he was definitely with someone. It was the night before his body would be found in that dumpster. Freddie wouldn't say why he was acting strangely, only that he had to go. They hung up, and it was the last time she ever spoke to her brother. When investigators conduct a search of Pastor Ron's house, they find knives and egg crate-style mattress toppers matching those found in the dumpster over 20 years prior. Those bathtub stickers with the floral pattern I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, they find the same kind on the bottom of the bathtub in Ron's house. Now, this is decades later. 
beyond that, they also uncovered loads of images of child sexual abuse. And bizarrely, what investigators call, quote, a homemade display of sex offender mugshots. And then this. Ron's house is so inundated with heaps of trash, they could not go about their normal routine methods of collecting evidence. The dude is a hoarder. This is what you're talking about when you say where there's smoke, there's fire. Not that everyone who's a hoarder is a murderer, but there's something else there. There's other things that get ignored, things that just are strange, things that give you the creeps about someone when they're somebody that, frankly, police should be paying attention to. And, you know, when police first spoke to Ron Hyde, they knew right away they had their guy. Yeah. I mean, they just they just knew it. He was that guy. And then when they question Ron Hyde about the last time he saw Freddie, Ron tells FBI agents who had taken over the case after the child sex abuse material was discovered, quote, when he called and I picked him up, it was in the evening. He spent the night and the next day at my house. I tried to take him home and he jumped from the car. Ron then goes on to say Freddie grabbed the steering wheel out of his hands and pulled the car over and jumped out. The FBI also discovers that Ron has been luring teen boys into his home and sexually abusing them. He's ultimately charged with dozens of counts of possession of child sex abuse material, a.k.a. kitty porn. So I like that you're pointing out that we kind of call it something different now, Phelps. I used to actually work uh, at a child advocacy center with victims of uh, child sexual abuse. And back then, that is, you know, what we called it 10, 15 years ago. It was actually the podcast Hunting Warhead, which is excellent if anybody wants to check it out. But that was the first place I heard using things like child sex abuse images or material instead of that phrase, because using the word pornography implies that there is consent. And of course, with a child, there can never be consent. And so I think it's really interesting to start using those new terms for these things that are. Yeah. I mean, language is important, right? Makes total sense. Yeah. So Ron's admitting to a lot of this stuff, but do they ever find the rest of Freddie? No. One thing Ron never comes clean about is the location of Freddie's head, arms, or legs. They are never recovered. And, you know, there's a simple reason for that is because he denies killing the kid, you know, and he's going he's gonna to bring that to his grave, which I hope he falls into very soon. In April of 2022, just a couple months ago, Ron Hyde was tried for Freddie's murder. On the stand, Pastor Ron said he did not murder Freddie and would never hurt a child. I mean, that's kind of an interesting phrase to use when you literally got caught with tons and tons of child sex abuse material in your house. Yeah. Well, it's it's arrogant. It's ignorant. It's narcissistic. It's all the things that Ron Hyde is. Also stupid. Yeah. Beyond being a scumbag child predator. Right. You know, he thinks he can just say this stuff, but no one cares what he says. The prosecution proves that Ron Hyde's DNA was not only found all over that flannel shirt, but they also had discovered Ron's DNA inside the dumpster. The prosecutor put it plainly in closing statements saying, quote, and I love this. This is great. DNA has no bias, has no agenda. And Ron Hyde, is all over that dumpster. It took jurors fewer than three hours to find the monster pastor 
guilty. Freddie's five siblings, with an empty space for Freddie in the middle of the section in court that they took up, sat in the front row to watch the verdict. In his statement to the court after the verdict, one of Freddie's brothers said, quote, he was loved. He was loved dearly. He had a grandmother who, on her deathbed, questioned what happened to Freddie. She died hours later, not knowing. We have our brothers and sisters who have wondered what happened to Freddie. We lost a future with our brother. When Ron Hyde was sentenced to life in prison, he seemed to smirk and showed zero emotion or reaction other than a flippant glare at the judge. He had expressed the desire to be sentenced immediately after he was found guilty, so the judge said, you know what, Ron? No problem. As of this crossing the line recording, he's on trial once again, this time facing multiple counts of possession of images of child sexual abuse. After the murder trial, several men came forward to say when they were teens, Pastor Ron had lured them to his house by providing alcohol, guns, weirdly, and gifts, and sexually abused them under the pretense of education and demonstration. Turns out Ron Hyde was a mental health counselor at the Crosswater Community Church in Nakati, Florida. He also worked at Strength for Living Church in Jacksonville. There, he was a youth counselor. He had several other jobs over the years working around kids, but always seemed to be fired or left the job abruptly. An affidavit from Hyde's child abuse trial reads as follows, quote, Hyde's abuse consisted of everything. Hyde would frequently show the boys pornographic videos of adults, and he used a full-size VHS camcorder to film kids during sexual acts. But he'd never hurt a kid. He'd never. He'd never. 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 He wasn't hurting them. Jesus. Ron Hyde has done nothing more than ruin people's lives, sucking up taxpayer money and the state's time going through the motions of trials in which he had no chance of being found not guilty. To me, in my opinion, Ron Hyde is a worthless human being who will and should rot in a Florida state prison. I wish he had gotten a death penalty. If we're going to have the death penalty, it is designed for scum like Ron Hyde. So with that said, I will see y'all next week here and we'll have another murder story for y'all. Sources for this episode include Columbia County Sheriff's Office arrest affidavit for Ron Hyde, former pastor sentenced to life by Alberto Luperon, Law and Crime, opening statements made in trial, by Ashley Harding and Janice Harris, News 4 Jax. Court records 1994 cold case suspect abused other boys by Eileen Kelly, the Florida Times Union. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen 
to your favorite shows.